How many of you have ever had that experience where somebody recommended a book or a movie and didn't really sound all that interesting, but sort of on their recommendation, you read it or you watched it and you feel like, wow, this is actually more interesting than I thought. Anybody? How about, how about uh, like a family vacation or a day trip that like other people in the family, maybe your spouse or the kids were excited about and you were like, really, do I have to go? And then you go, lo and behold, you enjoy yourself. You're surprised. Anybody have an experience like that before? Yeah. Okay, now be honest with this next one. How many of you feel that way about the book of Judges? Like when we announced the series, you were like, oh, really? Judges? 11 weeks? But how many of you have been, have been surprised by how the Word of God has spoken to you, how the Holy Spirit has, has made the Word of God relevant to your heart, spoken and encouraged and challenged you? How, how many people? Amen. Amen. Praise God. His Word is alive. It speaks to us. We have witnessed... These last 11 weeks, what Paul wrote to Timothy about in 2 Timothy 3, that the sacred writings, and Paul there is referring to the Old Testament. He says the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the Lord has done that in our midst, hasn't he? Thank God for his good, his good word. This morning we're going to wrap up with the last three chapters in the book of Judges. This closing account beginning in chapter 19. Next week, a little preview, we're going to begin a four-week series called Life in Exile. And Pastor Matt and I are going to lead you through some biblical texts talking about our identity as Christians as exiles. See, the reality is, friends, we are citizens of heaven. And that means if it's true that we're citizens of heaven, we are only sojourners, travelers, through this world, going towards our permanent home. Now, we'll learn that that doesn't mean that we ignore or we dismiss the people and the needs around us, but it means that our our hope, our identity, is not wrapped up in the structures and the values or in the successes of this world. And so it means that no matter how good or how bad things are going in our nation, no matter how successful or no matter how much failure the church is experiencing or appears to be happening, having in our desire to transform the people and the culture around us, it means that no matter what, we are ultimately not living in the promised land. We are exiles. Christians are living in Babylon. So we're going to unpack that for you, unpack the reality that we are a part of God's kingdom. And as Jesus said, his kingdom is not of this world. So I hope you'll join us for the next four weeks as we dive into some passages and unpack this this concept and give some practical admonition for, for living in the world around us. But for this morning, we're going to read the last three chapters, look at, at some um, of the big picture themes in the book of Judges. And I'm going to tell you, this is a depressing story. We've seen over and over again for the last 10 weeks, this ongoing cycle, right? The people fall into rebellion. They face God's judgment at the hands of a foreign nation. They cry out for help. God gives deliverance through one of these flawed human judges. There's a time of rest, But then the cycle repeats, right? And Judges has proven true the words of they might be giants. Anybody know that band? If it wasn't for disappointment, we wouldn't have any appointment, right? We've been disappointed, but in the midst of that, we have been pointed to the true reality of our true deliverer, that God and God alone is the true deliverer of his people. The last five chapters we saw last week show us the result of Israel's downward spiral, the tragic end of their unfaithfulness. And in reality, we see that their threats and what is coming against them is not external, but it's internal. We're now seeing the internal sin as the people, in essence, burn down their own nation. 
We saw this last week in the story of Micah's false worship and that refrain that's reported, re- repeated four times at the end of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we're going to see that again this morning. We're going to give you an overview of these last three chapters. And along the way, I want to draw out four different implications. I want to begin give you a warning, and I'm serious about this. I want to give you a warning before we begin this section of Scripture. It's, it's rated R. It, it's, it's going to be hard to read. The Word of God is going to give us an up-close look at the wickedness of humanity, at the depths of human depravity. As one commentator said, one horror seems to lead inescapably to another, apparently with no way out, as the people's unfaithfulness takes its devastating toll. And we're going to see exactly how sinful and destructive the nation of Israel has become. And, and parts of it are going to be hard to hear. We're going to read about some horrible things, rape and murder and violence and civil war and kidnapping. If you or a loved one have faced these kinds of trauma, I, I do pray and hope that you will pray and be cautious, seek the Holy Spirit to protect you and to give you peace as we unpack these difficult things this morning. So let me pray for us and then we will dive in. God in heaven, we need your grace, we need your spirit, and we need your wisdom to guide us and speak to us this morning as you have spoken to us time and time again through your word. We are grateful for a father who loves us, for a creator who designed a good world. We are grateful that in the midst of brokenness we found hope and peace and joy as you've drawn us to Christ, as you have transformed our hearts and forgiven us and filled us with your Holy Spirit. And so even now, God, speak to us through your living word, word, even through the difficult and discouraging and tragic events that we read, bring us to a place of hope, to, yes, a realistic understanding of the desperate state of sin, but a place of hope and faith in Christ, who is our only deliverer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have the book of Judges before you, either on your phone or on paper, you see there at the beginning of 9, it opens with these words, in those days there was no king in Israel. And then we are introduced to this unnamed Levite who's living in the, the region of Ephraim, and he has a concubine, a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now remember, the Levites are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, but he has taken on a concubine. A concubine, in essence, was a live-in mistress, basically like a second-class wife. It was, it was a depraved arrangement that had been adopted from the surrounding cultures where a married woman would take on a servant for the purposes of childbearing. And he would have legal responsibility, cultural connection to her. She was even considered part of the family, but she didn't have the honor of being his wife. And again, this guy is a Levite, and, and he's, he's taking this on. He's, he's bringing this practice into his own home. But then we read about how his concubine cheats on him and leaves and goes back to her hometown. Four months later, this man goes to Bethlehem to try to reconcile with his concubine and bring her back. And the woman's father is so happy to see the man that he invites the Levite in, and day after day he pressures him, stay a little longer, stay a little longer. He seems to be trying to repair the relationship. And finally, on the fifth day, the Levites had enough. He's like, I got to get out of here. I need to go back home. He insists on leaving. But by the time he can actually insist on leaving on the fifth day, it's now late in the day. It's evening. And so him and his concubine and his male servant, they get themselves together together, and they leave like as evening is dawning. Not the time to be traveling in the ancient Near Eastern world. It wasn't safe. 
So they leave, they travel. The first town they come to to try to find a place to stay is a Canaanite town. Remember, the Canaanites had not been driven out. There are still pockets of, of foreigners living in their land. He doesn't feel comfortable staying in the Canaanite town, so he goes to the next town, the town of Gibeah, which was an Israelite city in the territory of Benjamin. And they think, oh, now we'll be safe. We can find a place to stay. If you read this week, you know that they are sorely mistaken. Now, in the culture of the time, taking in travelers was like an expectation. It was, it was just common decency. But it's so late in the day that nobody will take them in, and they, and they end up just sitting down in the town square, kind of with no place to go and, and not sure what to do. As they're sitting there at the end of the day, as darkness is upon them, an old man comes in from the field. He's not from the town. He's a traveler himself who just happens to be staying there working in the region, but he has pity on them. Listen to what the old man says in verse 20. Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. We get some foreshadowing. This old man seems to know the reputation of the men of this town. And you do not want to spend the night out in the open in this place. So he brings them in. And that night they're eating and drinking. But the men of the city hear that there's a traveler. And so they surround the house. And the author of Judges describes the people as worthless fellows, which we're going to find out in a minute. That's like the understatement of the century. So there's this mob in an Israelite town. Could God's people, this mob is outside, beating on the door, demanding that the old man send out the traveler so that they can sexually assault him. That's their plan. The old man begs them not to do this, and he accurately describes their plan as wicked, outrageous, vile, what they want to do to this innocent traveler. But then the old man, shockingly, he does something even more wicked and even more vile. He says, no, don't, don't take the traveler that I've given respite to. Take my virgin daughter and the concubine and the, and the traveler's concubine. And we read that and we think, what? What? How is that the solution? What? How is that even an option? The mob can't be calmed down. They're beating on the door. And so finally the Levite pushes his concubine out the door, giving her to the mob. Maybe he figures she's already damaged goods. I don't know. Now some of you are hearing this and it reminds you of a story in the book of Genesis. You remember when Lot was living in Sodom. Abraham's nephew Lot is living in Sodom, this depraved, despicable town. And, and Lot hosts two men that we find out in the story are actually angelic beings and a mob in the same way gathers around the city demand the two travelers be sent out so that they can assault them and rape them and despicably unthinkably in that story in genesis lot also offers his daughters to the mob instead and we read that and we think what how, how could this even be an option now in the story in genesis what's interesting is that the angels intervene and the mob ends up going away but in this story we read in Judges, there is no such deliverance. And the message is clear. That the depraved sin of Sodom has now come to Israel. And what's more, tragically, God has removed his hand. And we see happening what is described later in Romans 1, that God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. And God doesn't stop it. He allows it to go on. He allows the natural outcome of their sin to unfold. And what happens next can barely be spoken. The mob has their way. And they assault and they rape this poor woman all night. And in the morning they leave her dead on the doorstep. It's awful. One of the most tragic, abhorrent, 
one of the most heinous events that I believe is recorded in all of the Bible, and it's recorded here for that reason, to turn your stomach to show you the depths of human depravity. The Levite picks up her body, puts her on on his donkey, and takes her back to his home in Ephraim. And when he gets home, and this part is, is awful as well, when he gets home, he dismembers her body into 12 different parts and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel, apparently with a message about what has happened. Of course, he leaves out the part about him putting her, giving her to the mob. Some see in the cutting up of her body a picture of the spiritual condition of Israel, that Israel at this point in their history has been ravaged by sin. They are dead and they have been torn apart into 12 different pieces. Look at the conclusion of the chapter, Judges 19, verse 30. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Nobody's ever seen or heard of anything like this happening. They're in shock. They don't know what to say, much less what to do. And the first thing that I want us to see here in this section of the book of Judges, the first takeaway, and I apologize, I had a crazy week, so I didn't have time to make slides. Um, Without a godly king in the land, the depravity of the people spirals out of control. First thing that's obvious is that without a godly king in the land, the depravity of the people spirals out of control. See, without restraint, sin will always overtake us, and evil will always abound. And the reality of of the human condition is that every part of us is tainted by sin. Not every part of us, thank God, not every part of humanity is as evil as it could be. We're not demons, but every part of us is tainted and infected by sin. Genesis 6, 5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Now God observed that before the flood. He sent the flood to cleanse the earth to start again with Noah, but we realize that that things have not really gotten much better. Psalm 14 says this, it's quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 3. It says that no one is good, no one seeks God. They have all become worthless. That's the human condition. And this story makes clear that we are in a desperate state. That without, without God's restraint, in this case, through what would have been a godly king, without a, a king in the land, this is where the people of God end up. And so thank God. Thank God for His restraining grace his restraining grace in our lives in our culture in our world despite challenges and problems and struggles and sin despite all the depravity we see around us god is restraining us we have not it doesn't seem unwound to this point so thank god for his restraining grace but we see here a picture of of the depravity of the people spiraling out of control now we see in verse 20 that in or excuse me chapter 20 In response to this tragedy and and receiving the the parts of this woman sent out to the 12 tribes of Israel, the chiefs from those tribes gather together at Mizpah. They gather 400,000 soldiers to figure out what to do. And, And we can think, okay, well, at least they're responding. They're gotten together. They want to avenge the wrongdoing. But as we'll see, the way that they avenge the wrongdoing that's happened is is not going to end up well. 
Now remember, there are 400,000 troops and the tribes from the, 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 the chiefs of the tribes of the 12 nations come together. But there's no king to lead them, right? There, there's no king to organize them to determine justice or to say, okay, here, here's what the Lord would have us to do. And so they have to decide for themselves what steps to take next. And the chiefs decide that they're going to surround the city of Gibeah, Gibeah in Benjamin where this travesty took place. And so united as one force, the army surrounds this Benjamite city. And in Judges 20, look at verse 12. It says that the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Listen, at this point, Israel does not have a great track record of their faithfulness to Yahweh, but they are at least able to identify that this, what has happened, is evil. It's wicked. It must be dealt with. We've got to purge this evil from our nation. See, they recognize that despicable men like this that have, have done this, the mob that's assaulted the woman, they can spread their reign of terror. What's more, they could suck others in to their sinful atrocities. But instead of giving the men up, the Benjamites decide, you know what? No. We're going we're gonna to fight back against you. You're going to come at us with an army? We'll fight back. And so driven by, I believe, a combination of pride, by a desire to protect their own. These are our people. These are Benjamites, right? Ignoring for a fact that they're violent sex offenders, but, but we're going to protect them. We're not going to allow you to tell us what to do. And so they mount an army. They gather 26,000 against the 400,000 to try to fight back. It's, it's unbeatable odds, but, but they're clouded by their own pride. And, and, and the tribe of Benjamin at this point has no sense of justice that these men do deserve death. They have no desire to obey Yahweh, no desire to preserve the national unity of Israel as God's people. And so we see secondly, I think, in this story, that without a godly king in the land, people recognize evil and they want to purge it. But as we're going to read, they're going to take matters into their own hands and it's not going to go well. See, first civil war now is going to break out, right? A war against brothers. We're told next in the story that the tribe of Judah is going to lead the attack. And we've seen time and time again in the history of Israel that Judah is going to take a leadership role. Now, for the first two days of this civil war, Benjamin actually is able to, to have some victory. They're fighting in the fortified city of Gibeah, and the others are coming against them. And, and so they're able to defeat the army. And thousands of Israelites die on the first two days of the battle. On the second night, the Israelites gather together, and they're mourning the loss of their men. And perhaps what I believe is a rare moment of faithfulness, they, they fast, they pray, they offer sacrifices to Yahweh. We even see the, the high priest showing up for the first time in the book of Judges. And he's asking God, should we go back into battle against one of our own tribes? And God assures them, yes, go in the next day, you'll have victory over the rebels. And so on the third day, the army of Israel changes their battle plan and, and they pretend as they go in and they attack the city and they pretend that they're retreating. Really what they're doing is drawing out the rebel forces. They draw them out into the open. And then they have an ambush waiting. And they surround them. And they slaughter all 26,000 of the Benjamite soldiers. Actually, there are 600 that escape. They're going to become crucial to the story in a moment. 600 of these soldiers escape, run off and hide. 
It says in verse 35 of chapter 20, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. See, while sin is abounding in the land of Israel, God's hand is still at work bringing justice, even through what I think is is rash and human leadership, God still is bringing justice. But but then things go on and get worse. See, the, the, the rebellion's been put down, the threat is gone, but then the army of Israel doesn't stop. They proceed to go town by town throughout the territory of Benjamin, and they slaughter the people, they burn down their towns and decimate the entire region of Benjamin. And it seems excessive, there's no indication indication that God was leading them to do this. And as we're going to find out later in chapter 21, it is in fact a big mistake that's going to cause even bigger problems. And maybe part of you, maybe we should feel some sense of satisfaction that the perpetrators have been destroyed, but, but the whole thing is just a sad tragedy, right? It's hard to feel anything but just, just sorrow and, and, and shock. Again, we see secondly here in the story that, that without a godly king, the people do recognize evil. They recognize that, that evil must be purged from the land, but, but they're forced to take matters into their own hands to do what we've read as, as what's right in their own eyes. And yet, evil does need to be purged. Wickedness does need to be driven out. There was a, there was a, a hint of righteousness in that, in that response to say we can't allow these sexual offenders to to go unpunished. We can't allow this kind of wickedness to go unpunished. It has to be dealt with. It has to be purged. We read there in verse 13. So let me me tell you what this is like. About a year ago, a roller on the molar on the bottom right-hand side of my mouth started to hurt. And after, you know, ignoring it for a couple months, as you try to do, you hope it's going to go away. I went to the dentist and they said, yeah, we've been following a little crack in that tooth and it's probably, you know, gotten to the point where something needs to be done about it. What we recommend is that we, we drill out and we take out the broken, damaged part of the tooth and we put a crown on top of it. A crown is essentially a cap that goes on top of your tooth to cover up the damage, right? And I had had this done once before a few years ago with a molar on the, the top of my mouth. And so I said, okay, let's, let's go ahead and do that. And so they grind it down, they get out the crack and the, and the broken part of the tooth, they put the crown over top and I, and I leave thinking everything is going to be okay. But what happens? You know where the story is going, right? With, within the next month, the, the pain's coming back, not going away. And then it begins to get worse, right? And I go back in and they say, well, the damage must've been more severe than we thought, deeper than we thought. The only option you have now is to get a root canal which I have scheduled for tomorrow at 2 p.m., so pray for me. (laughs) And what are they going to do in this root canal? They're going to drill through the crown. They're going to drill down through the tooth to the root of the tooth, drill out the nerve, the dead, dying, damaged nerve. I'm sorry. And they're going to extract it, and they're going to fill it in, right? Because, see, the problem is just simply covering it over with a cap didn't take away my problem, didn't take away my pain, didn't take away the decay and the dead dying nerve that was at the root of the tooth. The only way to truly deal with a a, a tooth that's gone that far is to purge the damage from the root. Sin has to be dealt with in the same way. And yet, I think so many times in our own lives, we we think, well, it's not that bad, we minimize it, we, we just try to cover over it, right? Or we downplay the state of our heart. We downplay the things that we say. We downplay our actions. We make excuses. We minimize it. We make light 
of the destruction of our own sin. And I know we can't compare ourselves to, to Israel. I'm talking about in your own heart, in your own life. The, the sin and, and, and selfishness and pride that are in your thoughts, that are in your words, that come out in your actions. I think that oftentimes we don't take the advice of chapter 13. We don't try to purge it. And like a bad tooth, it means it just spreads. It just gets worse. The problem never actually goes away. Friends, we do need to purge the sin from our lives. Paul will later quote in 2 Corinthians, he'll quote from this passage, he'll refer to the need to purge the evil from the local church. He'll write to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We are called, through the work of Christ, to put to death, to purge the evil that is still in our hearts. And by God's grace, it has been defeated on the cross. By God's grace, the power of the resurrection will fill us with the Holy Spirit and empower us, not in our own efforts, not through our own ingenuity or effort, but through the work of Christ to drive out those remaining element, elements of worldliness and selfishness and sin and pride in our lives. And if we don't, like the threat to Israel, it will spread. And, and you, you, can, you can try to stuff down those hard feelings and critical attitude you have to your spouse, but it's just going to come out. You can try to ignore the, the, the hurt and the pain that you feel in the workplace the way you've been treated by others, but it, it, it's, it's just going to come out. You can try to hide and ignore sexual immorality, but it's just going to manifest. And so we do need to purge and put to death what is earthly in us. See, the army of Israel, I believe, was right in their desire to purge the evil from Benjamin. But without any godly leadership, they don't go about it in the right way. And their problem is, they actually take things too far. It goes into civil war, and ultimately the complete decimation, almost, of the tribe of Benjamin. Because they have no godly king to lead them. Look now at, ver- at chapter 21. After the war is over, the tribes of Israel are gathered together again. And this time, we see some softness in their heart. They're, they're crying, they're weeping to God over the tragedy. They're offering sacrifices. And look at what it says in Judges 21 verse 3. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel today? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. See, the adrenaline rush, the rush of battle is now over. They step back and what happens? They're now filled with remorse. They now realize what they've done, that they've gone too far. And they have essentially destroyed the the entire tribe of Benjamin. And and their line will be ended. This whole people group, this whole tribe of Israel will become extinct. They're going to go on from this point with only 11 tribes. Changing God's whole plan and vision for his people. And they, they can't allow that to happen. Now they know that there are 600 soldiers of Benjamin that, that have escaped that are hiding in the caves. But, but these men have no wives to carry on their family line. And despite all that the tribe of Benjamin has done, despite their rebellion, despite them harboring these criminals, they, they can't, the nation can't bear that fate. It's too much. And their hearts soften. And they say in chapter 21, verse 6, that the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. See, here's the problem. 
And if you read this week, you, you, you see this coming. But the problem is that the, at the height of the offense, at the height of the offense, when the Benjamites refused to turn over the criminals and they made their plans for war, the Israelites had sworn an oath, I believe a rash oath, and they said, we're not going to give any of our daughters to marry anybody from the tribe of Benjamin. Right at that time, marriages were arranged. And they said, nobody from our family is going to marry those people. And they made a vow before God. But now they realize they've gone too far and they want to do something to rectify the situation. And so somebody calls to their attention, well, wait a minute, there was one family group, one town in the region of of Gilead that didn't send soldiers to fight in the war against Benjamin. They never joined us in the battle to purge the evil. And so this means, in the twisted minds of these Israelites, this means two important things. It means, first of all, the people from those ta- that town never made a pledge that they weren't going to give their daughters to marry somebody from the tribe of Benjamin. But secondly, they reason, well, the people from that town are guilty. They are guilty. There was a mandatory military requirement They didn't stand with the nation, and so they're guilty of shirking their required duty. And so, after having just nearly slaughtered the entire tribe of Benjamin, they send 12,000 troops to go into this town in Gilead to destroy the town. And they decimate the entire town except for the virgin women. And they bring back 400 young women and give them to these soldiers of Benjamin so that the family line of Benjamin can go on. And you think, that's how you solve the problem? Like, that's what made sense to you? Certainly doesn't seem like justified retaliation. It doesn't seem like a good way to handle what's going on. But things get even worse, because if you do the math, there's 600 soldiers. They've just decimated and stolen 400 young women to give to them in marriage. There's 200 soldiers that still don't have any way to continue the family line. And then someone says, well, what about that feast in Shiloh? And they devised this, this demented plan. There's a feast in Shiloh, an annual feast where the women of the town come out of the town and they dance as part of the festival. And so they tell the 200 remaining soldiers of Benjamin, you go and hide in the woods. When those young girls come out to dance for the festival, wink, wink, kidnap them and bring them back to be your wives. What? See, then, then the, the people won't be giving their daughters in marriage to you. You'll, you'll be taking them. Somehow that gets them around their their vow. It's horrible. It's heinous, right? But somehow they justify it. Somehow it makes sense to them. Somehow this is a way that they can continue the line of of Benjamin. Now these 600 men can start over and rebuild the tribe. I think we come to the third reality, the third point that I want us to see in this passage this morning is that without a godly king in the land, yes, the people can identify injustice, but the way they deal with it is wicked. They identify injustice, but then they try to deal with it in a wicked way. Listen, listen to a review of what we've seen and read this morning. That all of their solutions to wrongdoing simply create more wrongdoing. Right? So there's an old man. There's a mob trying to attack the visitor that he's brought into his home. And so what's his solution? He offers his daughter and the man's concubine to the mob. He, he's trying to deal with wickedness with, with more wickedness. The Levite. The Levite is angered that his his concubine has been assaulted and murdered, and so he cuts her up and sends her to the tribes of Israel. The tribes of Israel are outraged by what's happened, and they should be outraged, right? They're identifying, they're rightly identifying injustice in all of these situations. But the tribes of Israel then respond to a civil crime with a military attack that is way overdone. 
the tribe of Benjamin, they find themselves surrounded, outnumbered, and they decide, well, rather than turn over the criminals, let's just fight our way out of this, right? Then the tribes of Israel realize they don't want Benjamin to become extinct, and so their solution is, let's go attack an Israelite town and steal wives for these rebel survivors. And then when they don't have enough, they tell the the rebel survivors, well, you just go kidnap some wives. I mean, like, you think like you're, you're in the right direction. You're identifying these things are not good. These are not right. We can't allow this to happen. But what's their solution? Sin, injustice, more grave wickedness. You can't fight wickedness with more wickedness. And listen, here's the thing. Sinful people can often identify, can often rightly identify things wrong in their lives, wrong with the world around them, wrong even sinners can see injustice, but the problem is they don't have a godly way to deal with it. And so they end up confronting sin with more sin. Remember hearing about that house fire last July in New Freedom? Some of you may even know the, the family that was involved. A house in, in, right in the center of our little borough. And, and, and the woman who owned the house, her boyfriend was so angry with her, so upset with her, and there was reports of what happened. I'm not going to go into it. But, but he's so, so angered by relational brokenness with his girlfriend, he goes into her house and he sets fire to it. Now, he may have rightly identified something wrong, a way that he had been wronged by his girlfriend. But his solution is to burn down her house? Doesn't make any sense. But again, even sinners who don't know God can often see that something is wrong. We can point out an injustice in our lives or in our culture. But the problem is sinners don't know how to overcome it. Or or they don't want to. Or they simply don't have the power to do it. And that's what happened in Israel. Without a godly king, there's no direction, no justice. Think about, for example, you know, the, uh, I guess, the quote-unquote sexual revolution. Have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. And, and, and what happened generations later? Now we have all of these unwanted pregnancies. We have teenage girls pregnant. And so what is our culture's solution? Well, we just need to make abortion more accessible, right? They're rightly identifying a problem, unwanted pregnancies, but their solution is simply to, to bring more injustice and more depravity to, in an attempt to overturn, Right? Not seeing the, 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 the brokenness. Not seeing the, the decimation of human life. Not seeing the foolishness. And, and we can point and we can look at time after time after time at, 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 at people in the world. And we can say, yes, I agree with you. That's not good. That's not right. We should deal with it. But they don't know how. And yet we do this, I think, in our own lives as well. We do this too, right? And our kids are, are grumpy and they're bickering with one another. And what do we do? We lose our cool and we snap at them. Thinking, well, somehow they, it, you know, their sin justifies my sin. Or, or, or we, we're, we're faced with a situation of gossip. People are talking about one another, bad-mouthing one another, and what do we do? We gossip to other people about the gossip. Somehow we think that that's going to make it better. Or we lie. We've gotten ourselves into a pickle. We're in trouble at work. We're in trouble at home. We've been caught in a lie. What do we do? We lie again to try to get our way out of it, Right? But sin is never the solution to sin. You're never going to make things better by confronting wickedness, injustice, or sin with anything other than the plan and path of God. And so we do, time and time again, 
what seems right in our own eyes. The culture, time and time again, does what seems right in their own eyes, but the outcome is always hopeless. Friends, whether it's personal sin or corporate injustice, you cannot use personal instinct. You cannot come up with logical solutions or develop human tactics or use physical force to stop something that only the mercy of God, only the power of God, the grace of God, the wisdom of God can overcome. So the first reality is that that we need to repent. We need to repent personally. We need to repent corporately for how we as individuals, how we as a nation, as, as a culture, have sought unjust solutions to maybe maybe rightly identified injustice we need to repent and we need to cry out to god for mercy to change our own heart for mercy to change the world around us because these are things that cannot be overcome through our own efforts we we need the mercy and the grace of god Maybe things would have turned out different for Israel if they had had a godly king. Again and again, that's the message of Judges. There was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in our own eyes. And that's the sad ending of the book. Look at the last two verses in Judges 21, 24 and 25. And the people of Israel departed from there where they had gathered at the end of the war. They departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we can ask, we can read the the tragedy of the book of Judges, and we can ask, if there had been a king, would it have made any difference? Would it have helped? After all, I mean, the nation's gone through at least a dozen different judges, many of whom God himself had raised up, these military leaders, and at the end of the day, they, did, they made no lasting impact on the nation, right? The cycle just repeated. And so I think it's appropriate to say, as, as the author laments the, the, the absence of a king, I think it's appropriate to ask, would it have made any difference? And we could hope that a king might have been there that might have provided some stability some direction we can hope that maybe a a righteous king would have established justice would have returned the people to the law of moses that he would have brought unity that he would have restored pure worship at the tabernacle in fact you go back and read the law of moses that was always the plan the plan in 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 deuteronomy 17 was that one day God would call a future king to do just that, to lead the people in righteousness. Deuteronomy 17, Moses said to the the people, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, the people will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And you read that and you think, well, that sounds hopeful. That's exactly what the nation needed. A righteous king who would look to the law of God, who would be humble, who would not give in to wealth or, 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 or to marrying many wives and, and sexual infidelity. 
a wise king, a godly king, a faithful king to restore the law, to bring true worship to God's people. And we think that's the vision that they needed in the period of the judges. And in fact, generations later, what I believe the book of Judges yearned for did in fact come. Generations later, a king would finally be set, uniting the 12 tribes. And we read about King Saul. The people coming together. King Saul from the tribe of, wait for it, from the tribe of Benjamin. Isn't that ironic? And we read the book of Judges and and we should have learned, the people of God should have learned that you can't expect much from the tribe of Benjamin. And in fact, Saul, the first king of the 12 tribes of Israel, ends up being a selfish, presumptuous man who doesn't listen to God. And so the kingdom is stripped from him. And then he's replaced by David. David from the tribe of of Judah. The leader of Israel. A man after God's own heart, we're told. The same tribe that led the people in battle here in the book of Judges. That's whom the king will come from. And he's anointed by God to lead the people. And initially it seems that he will fulfill the hopes of the nation. And God, in David's life, makes an everlasting covenant with David that from his line will come a king to sit on the throne forever. And we have hope. And yet, sadly, we read that David himself is an adulterer, a murderer. He's got blood on his hands. God won't allow him to build a house of worship. His kingdom is then passed on to Solomon. What happens to Solomon? He's a womanizer. He as well is unfaithful. And one by one, you read the history of the kings of Israel. One by one, they all fail. One by one, they all fall away from Yahweh. They slip into idolatry. And the faithlessness of the nation continues until the point in history where they are no better off than the period of the judges. And you could argue that later they were actually in a worse place than they were during this period of history. See, the book of Judges ultimately shows us where I think we finally land our fourth, fourth point this morning, and I think the, the point of the whole book of Judges, is that what God's people truly need is not an earthly king, but a heavenly king, a heavenly savior king. That's what, that's what the people yearned for. That's what the book of Judges drives us to. This is what God's people truly needed then, and this is what we truly need now. And one day, that promised king would come, who would be the son of David, the covenant that God made with David, though it wasn't fulfilled through him. It would be fulfilled through his descendant, son of David, son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. A faithful Israelite who would one day come, born in humility, the son of God, born in humility as a human, as a man, living his whole life as a servant, in faithfulness to the covenant, walking in love, walking in obedience. He would climb up on the cross, Don't think for a second he was put up there against his will. He willingly climbed up on the cross, dying as a sacrifice for his people. And three days later, he rose again. Rose again in triumph, triumph over his enemies, giving life to all of the sons and daughters of God. And so we rejoice that finally there is a king in the land. Finally there's one who can rightly deal with the depravity of humans. One who can fully and finally purge the evil that resides in our hearts, that oozes and floods out into the world around us. One who can finally come and break this cycle, the cycle that we don't just read about in the book of Judges, but that happens in every society and happens in every human heart. 
but we return to our sin. And finally, the king, the savior king comes and he breaks the cycle of rebellion. He overcomes injustice and evil and he brings justice and he brings mercy. Amen. Friends, as the worship team comes, we're going to prepare to worship this king, to follow this king, to trust this king. And so I call you today. I call you that have been loving and following and serving King Jesus your whole life and those who walked in today with questions, with doubt, with anger, with frustration, with the inability to believe and trust. I call you to trust in this King. The only hope that we have. Trust in the King and His power to deliver you from yourself, to deliver you from the the enemy Satan, to deliver you from the threat of death and eternal judgment. And submit to Him. Submit to this King. Walk with Him in obedience. And believe that he has won the war. We read these Old Testament stories, battle after battle after battle, and it turns our hearts. Friends, the war is over. Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil on the cross. He rose in triumph through the resurrection. The call now is to fight the battle alongside of him. Stand with me as we prepare to worship. I'm going to close with this beautiful passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many enemies. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the coming King.